Ever wondered who and what is shaping Luxembourg? This is your Lux Unplugged podcast with your hosts, Adrian and Thierry. Hi, I'm Adrian. Welcome back to another episode at the Luxembourg podcast. We know it's been a while since our last episode, but we're thrilled to return with some exciting news. During our brief hiatus, we have been busy onboarding a new partner, the Luxembourg Chamber of Commerce. This collaboration marks a significant milestone for us, enhancing our credibility whilst firmly establishing us within Luxembourg's vibrant ecosystem. In the coming months, we will be releasing more theme-based episodes to address the Chamber of Commerce's key agenda points which are aimed at improving Luxembourg's competitiveness and other important areas. Stay tuned. This brings us to the studio where Thierry and myself sit down with Matthias Lenz, CEO of Brasserie Nationale, Luxembourg's largest privately owned brewery and producer of beers such as Bofferding and of course Butter. Our conversation spans a variety of topics including Brasserie Nationale's history, the impact of Luxembourg's cultural diversity on their beer proposition, sustainability in brewing and the challenges that have arisen following the COVID-19 pandemic. We also dive into the implications of the new government in place and what it means for the industry in general. We discuss the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead for the country to preserve its competitiveness and overall attractiveness. Needless to say, the next five years are indeed crucial for Luxembourg's economy. Today's episode is kindly supported by the Luxembourg Chamber of Commerce. But now, without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Matthias Lenz, CEO of Brasserie Nationale. Matthias, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here in the studio. Before we dive into this very liquid and fluid conversation, could you please give a flavor to our audience and introduce yourself? So my name is uh, Matthias, born and raised in Luxembourg. And then I moved quite a lot for my studies. So I went to boarding school in the UK, a university in America. Then I came back uh, to Luxembourg, worked for a logistic company for a couple of years before moving to China for six years. Uh, and then I came back to Luxembourg to finally settle down. So you had a very unusual journey for someone from Luxembourg. We discussed in many podcasts what the typical journey of a Luxembourger is, getting from schooling into their work life. Uh, so you didn't join a Brasserie Nationale straight out of university. Uh, what was important for you to learn before joining the ranks of your family business? For me, the key was to learn anything different. Uh, the goal was to get some work experience and to actually get some life experience before joining the family business. I think I could have gone to university, graduated, started in the, in the company. Being the son of my father who runs the business, it would have been difficult, I could say, because everybody knows who you are. I have no experience, so they all expect you, oh, as they say in French, le fils à papa is coming. So I had to prove myself before joining the business. Maybe that's another question for later down the line. Have there been any prerequisites in, in the family business for, for family members to, to join yeah, uh, one, the company? Absolutely. I think one of them, one and the only one we always speak about is get some outside experience. That's it. That's the first one we have. We're lucky to have a family business that's 10 generations old, but there's one sole owner at the moment uh, and my sister and me coming up ahead. So we've been told from a very young age, whatever you do, you can do whatever you want, but you have to work outside of the company before coming and joining us. Can you tell our listeners a little bit how important was it for you personally 
from a cultural experience being in these different countries before joining the business? It opens up the horizon. It's a very cliche thing to say, but I think it's the truth. The fact that I do understand the British culture, I do understand the American culture, I understand the Chinese culture, and obviously the Luxembourgish culture, the Luxembourgish culture being part French, part German, uh, so Central European. So I think that gives you a big advantage of flexibility and also being able to communicate. We're talking about entrepreneurship and, and, and undertaking stuff. Well, you were talking about the, the business that you joined after experiencing all, all those years abroad. But for the international audience, which is the majority of our audience that, that are listening to this piece, can you please just give us a bit of a rundown of Brasserie, the Brasserie National Business, so National Brewery, if we had to just plainly translate it? The history starts in 1764, so it's a long history. So basically, it was a brewery. It was started in the Grund, so whoever has never been to Luxembourg, you should go to the Grund. It's got the most beautiful pubs with the most beautiful view. And this is where the Funkbrischer Brewery was founded. This is our family brewery. Then in 1975, the Funkbrischer Brewery merged with the Boffeding Brewery, which is in Bacharach. They merged together in 1975 to create the Brasserie Nationale. So it was two families. There was the Lenz family and then there was the Boffeding family. Over time, the Boffeting family left uh, the company and then it stayed with one person, the Lenz company, the Lenz family name. What also happened is that it was called the Brasserie Nationale, but it was also known as the Boffeting Brewery. It wasn't until 2004 where we bought uh, the Batin brand and then we started making all these craft beers, Batin Gambrinus, Batin Pils, Brun, Fruité, Blanche, etc., etc., that we are starting to put the name forward of Brasserie Nationale. Usually people know it as still today as the Boffeting Brewery. So over the years, obviously a lot of beer names in Luxembourg have uh, disappeared. And obviously, like in many other countries, big global conglomerates buying up businesses all over the place. So how have you navigated those challenges while you know, preserving your independence? The, the Luxembourgish beer market is an interesting one. So... Fun facts, uh, in the 70s, for example, Luxembourg produced uh, 630,000 hectoliters. So that's 63 million liters. That's the production of Luxembourgish beers. This was Dikirsch, Musel, some of them you might still remember. What happened is that Musel started buying up a lot of these breweries. And then in the year 2000, Abeinbev came in, bought Dikirsch, Musel, and then there was none left. This is kind of the history of it. So what happened is that today, the Luxembourg market produces 225,000. So that's one third of what it was in the 70s. What has changed is that there's a lot of craft breweries. There is around 12 breweries in Luxembourg that produce beer on a regular basis that are declared. So this is something very nice. The whole craft movement is something interesting. But Luxembourg is a pills drinking country, so it's very important to keep the pills. So what happened with us is our advantage is that we are a small family business. And because we're always present, we're motivated, we have plans, this is where we have the advantage of the big conglomerate that come to Luxembourg. They don't know the culture, they don't know the language, they underestimate Luxembourg, they underestimate the drinking culture in Luxembourg, and this is our forte. We speak the languages, we know everyone, and it helps. Luxembourg, I mean, you, talk, you were talking about the 70s and the demographics of the 70s back then was much more focused on the Luxembourg population, but since as most people now based in Luxembourg and probably internationally know, the, the, the population is pretty much diversified. And, and that's the reason why we actually launched this podcast in English, because 
it, it will hit home a lot, a lot more people that, that, that are not native Luxembourgers. So the question is very simple. Having that in mind, probably like you know, half of the population is not native and the others is just probably like emigrated to Luxembourg. How has the presence of those people kind of influenced the way you, you brew your, your, your product? And has that, has that any cultural influence in the way you look at things? You can see with the beer market, the influence of uh, the immigrants in Luxembourg. So we are the country with the most imported beers with 55%. So 55% of our beers that are consumed in Luxembourg are foreign beers. If it's uh, Leff, if it's Heineken, if it's Superbook, Sagres, whatever it is, it's foreign beers, 55%. This is the highest by far on any other European country. So this is what we have to deal with. So what we also do is we're part of a logistic group, so Munoven, the Brasque National Border Group called Munoven. And with that, we do the logistics. So we have around 4,000 different products. We also sell different types of beers. So we sell Erdinger, Klausthaler, Superbock, whatever you want, because it's a logistic company. With that, we have to adapt to it. And I think that's where you can see the influence. I mean, I, w- I was a little bit surprised now what you said in terms of the microbreweries. Mm-hmm. You would almost think that for the size of Luxembourg, uh, a lot of more unknown or, or smaller microbreweries from the neighboring countries could actually you know, be sold, consumed in Luxembourg. And then you would take a, well, let's say, a financial hit and you have to adapt. Is that something that didn't happen or did it mainly help in order to the drinking culture a little bit more diverse? Both. So first of all, the drinking culture in Luxembourg has declined. People drink less beer. People drink differently. Overall, this is a worldwide phenomenon. You don't drink as much beer as you used to. People drink differently. They drink driving. People take care of their health. They, you know, they're less strict. The smoking ban um, had a little effect on it. The taxes, all of this has an effect on it. So people drink differently. Um, today they choose what they want they want quality rather than quantity and they're less loyal to a brand if you're in 70s or 80s you would drink probably in the uk the same you would drink one beer carling or you would drink buffeting in luxembourg and you would drink nothing else or you would drink dickers and say i just love dickers and i hate them today that doesn't happen anymore so all these microbrews came along and they made they made beer sexy again because in luxembourg it was pills Everyone had only pills and these craft brews came along. They had stouts, they had hazy IPAs, they had some very complicated drinks, some a bit more interesting, but it just shows a diversity of beer. And I think today that somebody that comes up to me and says, I don't like beer, that doesn't exist. I think that's just an excuse because they haven't made an effort to actually try it. There's such a diversity of beer. If you're allergic to alcohol, Fair enough. I mean, that's fair enough. The only reason you don't like it because you saw a Budweiser commercial and you tried a Budweiser, it's not good enough. There is so much diversity of it. So I think that also affect and that helped the Luxembourgish market grow. And for us, for the company, this is where we bought Batin in 2004 and we started doing all these craft brewers to kind of diversify in the market to try and do different things in the market. And that was that was a difficult thing to do for us. You know when you when you go to a pub in or yeah cafe or pub in in Luxembourg, it's usually branded by one beer company, so to speak. Yeah. Where you know in in the UK we have you know Fuller's Pub and we have these pubs, and you can buy all different sorts of beer brands. While in Luxembourg, that is sometimes not really existing. Is that more mostly because of the draft, right? Probably uh, yeah. because of the draft. Yeah. Is that not something that um, is a bit 
well, compared to all the other countries, I think if you go to the pub, if I go to the pub, I want to have a selection of beer from different brewers. And in Luxembourg, you go to a pub and you on, either get only butter or you only get buffeting or buffeting and butter, but you don't get dickish beer, as an example. Is that is that good or bad? How would you say it? If you will look at it from an independent consumer perspective. So in the UK, when you have, for example, Fuller's pubs, they're owned by Fuller's and they're owned by Asai, so they have all their brands. If you go to a Dikish bar in, in Luxembourg, you will have all the different Belgium styles. You'll have Lef, because mm. it's owned by Abbey Inbev. So they have, it's the biggest brewery conglomerate in the world, so you can have any beer you want. But you won't find a buffeting in there. Is it bad? Is it good? It is what it is, and I think you have to make do with it. And for us, so we work with the CBBL, Confédération des Brasseries et des Brasseurs du Luxembourg. So these are all the microbreweries. And they can all sell their beers in our pubs because we want to diversify. But also to tell you the truth, on the beers that we produce, we have about 14 different types of beers. The 95% of our volume is buffeting, patinpils, patinambrinus. For those that don't know, it's lager, straight up lager. But, all the but, other tradition, but, but maybe using traditional methods, right? Traditional method, absolutely. Yeah. So the, the way we brew yeah. is the traditional the Reinheitsgebot, the purity law. So it takes about 90 days to produce your beer. Well, you have a lot of big breweries that take up to 90 hours to produce your beer, which is not a bad thing. It is. It just is what it is. There's a different market for it. So I always compare it. If you go to a farmer's market on a Saturday and you buy fresh carrots, it's one type of carrot, or you can go to the supermarket and buy tinned carrots. They're both useful. You both need them for different things. It's just a different, it's a philosophy question. That's what it is. I was thinking about it again, going back to what you just said. It's not because people have, have uh, you know, people say they drink less, less beer. It's just more a question of, you know, the break, breaking up of, uh, of multiple brands and, and microbreweries. So, I mean, I, I think I already, I already know the answer, but I'm still going to ask the, the question. Um, so it's become very competitive in that sense. So microbreweries are kind of coming in. I'm assuming you don't own those microbreweries, so, that's, so I'm going to no. ask the question. You represent the, the, the very established names that have been locksmith for many generations. How do you compete? How, how do you kind of coexist with all those other brands that, that are trying to grab more, you know, grab more market share whilst you know, still preserving your identity in that sense? We embrace them. So we embrace all the microbreweries. So we have a competi competitors. Um, those are the big breweries that come to Luxembourg. Dikish, for example, it's a competitor. Um, and all the microbreweries, they're very small, but we encourage them because it's also not a direct competition. Buffeting and Dikish, that's a direct competition. But a, a hazy IPA with 10,000 IBUs where you have to drink one sip and it's very bitter, it's not a competition to a pills. So we embrace them. It just shows a bit of... It just shows a bit of uh, the different beers. But also what we do is that our market is not Luxembourg. Our market is La Grande Région. So we, we, go, we go all the way from Luxembourg up to Brussels, Lille, Reims, and then down to Alsace to the Swiss border. That's our market. That's where we sell. We sell around 48% of all our kegs go to these countries, to France and, and Belgium. And we also work in the same way. We have the same price. We visit our clients once a month or every two months, depending on the size of the clients. And our key goal is proximity. We know them. We get to know them. We get invited to their wedding. We invite them to the brewery because we have a very nice brewery that we want to show off. We do a porte ouverte, so we invite them all to come and visit them with the families. 
we do events. We have Fête de la Bière in Metz. We have La Capelle, so it's a, a horse racing a day where they have they can name the name of the pubs of of big clients. They can have their race. So Café uh, Chez Jacques uh, can have a race. So we do all these events. We do them in, in Luxembourg, in Belgium, and in France because we know our clients. We're close to our clients. The the big competitors that we have, if it's Cronenberg or Heineken or whoever it is uh, in France, for example, you, they see the client twice, once at the beginning of a contract and one five years later when it's done. By then, we would have seen them at least six times a year. We know them, we invite them. So the relationship is much better. And sure, it helps. The money option is always a thing. So when you open a bar, if it's in Luxembourg or in France, you ask for an investment. You can't go to a bank and say, look, I'm going to open a pub. I need 100,000 euros. Please give it to me. The bank will tell you absolutely no way. This is a brewer's job. This is a brewer's job around the world. This is what breweries do. This is how they keep the clients. So this is why we also want to brand the borrower because we paid for it. We pay for the sanitation. We make sure the beer is clean. We give them an education on how to pour a beer, how to, how to clean the pipes, how to make sure everything is the best so that the quality of the beer is at top. So this gives us a little advantage that the others don't have. So it's a little bit like running a franchise, essentially. Yes, a franchise where they're all different. <laughs> yeah, but but the the IP and and I suppose you you supply the equipment and all that stuff. I suppose absolutely. So, yeah, so we so when we have even if you don't have a, a contract, pe- some people don't want any money, don't want anything. We give them the installation because we want to make sure that the product is served is served in the best way. So a lager is. So the most complicated beer to make is a Helles, which is a German type of, it's an even more lighter, not in alcohol, but just in in flavor than a Pils. And a Pils is a very sensible beer. So any kind of mistake, if the glass is not clean, if the pipes aren't clean, if, if your cellar is dirty, if it smells in the pub, all of this can affect the taste of the beer. If you have a strong IPA, that has a 7% alcohol and it's very hazy and has so much flavor going on, it doesn't matter if your glass is clean or not, you're not going to know a difference. It's like going to an Indian and you have a very spicy dish. You're not quite sure if it's beef, if it's not. I mean, if you don't eat spicy, I don't really eat that much spicy. So it's a bit like that. So yeah, so we we make sure that the quality of the beer is on top because it's very important. It's our... It's our business. <laughs> so you say that being close to your customer is very, very important. And having that personal relationship with them, that usually only works when your class customers are very close to you. So in your radius, where you get over 48% of your business, how do you do that with all your customers that are far away? Asia, America, wherever you else, uh, wherever else you sell your beer, how do you navigate through this personalized uh, approach so 99 percent of our market is the region around luxembourg Mm -hmm. so we have what we call opportunity markets so those are usually as we said we have a lot of uh, foreigners in luxembourg born and raised second generation and then go back to their country of origins and they know buffeting so they come and see us and they say look i live in cameroon for example i want to import buffeting so for us, we're like, sure, no problem. You imported, they do it. So whenever they come to Luxembourg or they have a cousin that lives there, we see them regularly there. We don't actually travel there because we call them opportunity markets. It's not our main It's not our main business, but they are all related to Luxembourg. So it's not a random person that doesn't know Luxembourg. So this is why it works. Cameroon is our biggest export at the moment. 
randomly. <laughs> well, it's it's traditionally been, I think, it used to be occupied by Germany, right? And uh, they do brew their own beer. Yeah. So the culture is established. So I, I'm not surprised personally, but yeah, carry on. No, it's definitely, it's, it's yeah. When I tell people Cameroon is our best seller, it's, uh, I mean, it's our best seller outside of as like opportunity markets is our best seller. So it's a ni- nice to have, if an opportunity arises in, in another country or another continent, it's a nice thing to have and it helps, you know, brand awareness in a way. Yeah, in a way. I think China was very good. Before COVID, we were quite active in China. I also lived there for a while, so it, it helped. Also, there was a lot of people that went to China, so we were in we were in quite prestigious restaurants, so they had a huge pyramid. You know, they really played that whole Luxembourgish side of it because they were born and raised in Luxembourg. So when you go to China, you have a huge buffeting pyramid and people would take picture of it and send it to us. So it was a great marketing thing, but volume-wise or profitability, it was, yeah, what it, it is what it is. <laughs> Going back a little bit on the, in the history, are there any specific cultural or historical aspects that present unique challenges or opportunities for breweries in Luxembourg? If you want to do export, uh, and I'm not talking France and Belgium, I'm talking outside of Europe, the biggest challenge that we always have is geography. I always start my presentation of where is Luxembourg? What have we done? We're not just bankers and lawyers. We're actually a bit more than that. We actually produce beer. If you're German or if you're Belgian, and you have to talk about beer, people know straight away, either it's, it's, a, it's a beer d'habille or it's a, a Belgian-style beer, people know. German-style beer, they know. Luxembourg, they don't know that Luxembourg, apart from having money and banking, Luxembourg is not really well known. And this is one of the biggest challenges that we have. So we, I have a, a friend who lives in, in Sweden and I'm trying to get into Sweden and it's, Sweden is run by the government, so the government decides on what comes in. Luxembourg is not even on that list. So we have to, our first challenge is even to get Luxembourg on this list, government awareness that maybe we could also be an option for a type of beer. So this is, that's a tough one. <laughs> so, so I know you through Anton Klausen, who's the CEO of uh, Bernard Massard. And I recall on the podcast, he mentioned that they managed to penetrate the Finnish market. And I don't, well, Sweden is a bit different, but because of this, this kind of government kind of controlled way of coming on the list. He mentioned that, so thanks to a relationship that his dad had at some point, they remembered him as the the bottle or the sparkling wine with the yellow label and, and the red top. So inevitably, I'm going to ask you the question because here, here we're talking about, you know, brand and how you identify beer in this case. So Luxembourg is known for, for its financial place or, or if you go, go for a little bit, bit out in time, it's known for its tax havens and so forth. But if you had to say, well, if there's one thing that would distinguish your products from a visual point of view, what, what would you say? You know, say, well, no, we are the country where we produce this beer. But people say, how do I know it's your beer? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> so visually. Visually or even, even taste. I don't know. It's just what, what makes it unique? What's the USP? I think... 10 generation family business i think that's the key the key thing to it we are uh, the oldest existing brewery in in luxembourg uh, we're the biggest brewery in luxembourg uh, with 26 percent market share not to forget that's 55 percent imported and then we have number two which is dickish so for us we are by by far we are the biggest uh, luxembourgish man so it's got pros and cons so we are definitely the budweiser of luxembourg 
we're in all the events, we're everywhere because we know everyone, we know the events and we're always there. It has a negative side to it because a lot of locals think, oh, Bofferding again. While when you Google Bofferding, Bofferding is always on top in the top 10. Bofferding is definitely the brand, the Luxembourgish brand of beer. So that helps That helps a lot to get the product there. So the, 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 the old history of it helps. A question that comes to my mind, you know, family-owned business, many generations. Here we talk about beer. We have some similar cases for family business, generational business, but wine. You all face the same challenge when you want to export. Can you run us through what these challenges are most commonly? Is it competition? Is it quality price? Or what, what does it come down to? So when we started, so we started uh, to export into Belgium after the Second World War. We had a, a Belgian a distributor that we still have today. So we've been in Belgium since before, after the Second World War. France, we started in 95. Um, when we started off in both of these things, in both of these countries, the biggest challenge at the beginning, because nobody knew you're from Luxembourg, why would we want your product? We're French, we drink wine, we don't need you. We're Belgian, we have the best beer in the world, why do we need you? So this was the definite, the first challenge that we had. Over time, we've made our reputation, people know us, because we have that contact with the people. Obviously, the product is very good. We're, we're proud of the product. We produce a product that's very German-style beer. So in the brewery, we only speak German. So it's a very German-orientated product. So we know that the quality of the product is very good. But the barkeeper, at the end of the day, he just wants to sell as much as possible. So we have to convince him, you know, first of all, if he doesn't know the brand, we have to convince him why it's better. So we have to invite him, we have to taste him, we have to show him everything. So the challenges are, first of all, to get people to believe in this Luxembourgish uh, product, which with everything, I think. But that brings me to a very natural question, because let's say you're in a Belgian pub and, well, you've got the Abin Bef traditionally owned names and, and others even you know, all the all the abbey stuff that that the numerous of them in in the country but let's just say you know they come in and they they see buffeting or any other of your brands versus jupiler what makes them go for the luxembourgish beer your beer you know what's what's the kind of trigger once they know it they will stick with it because the quality is superior it sounds very arrogant but we produce a product that takes six weeks to eight weeks to produce. We take our time and we really do a natural product. It's easier to drink. I don't want to say easier to drink, but it's if it's well served, you can definitely spend all night drinking a good buffet. Not saying that you can't do that with another beer, but the beer drinker that wants to drink beer, what they call in France, beer de soif, just chugging it, easy to drink. Um, this is where we are, the quality of our product is better it's superior it's a fact it's the fresh product the disadvantage of it it's much it doesn't travel well so when we ship it across different borders it doesn't travel as well because it's fragile it's not pasteurized there's no additives to it so it's a it's a very delicate product the lager is a delicate product if i if i sell the brun for example it's at seven degrees alcohol no problem can go around the world come back it's still good belgian beers Brewed in Belgium, beer d'abbeys, you can see them all around the world because they're usually 7-8% alcohol. There's still a lot of yeast in it. It's it's preservative. You can keep them for a long time. You can keep them years after. Orval does a whole thing about being 10 years old and you can still drink it. A German-type pills, 
you can't. You have to drink it fresh. This is why a lot of the German pills have to build different breweries to have the freshest product because they can't pasteurize. They don't add any additives because it's a fragile product. It doesn't travel as well. There's a lot of exports. Uh, there's a lot of export of German pills, but the most ones in the world are the Belgian ones because they keep. You can keep them for 10 years. You can also keep a German beer for 10 years. The flavor will vary, but you're not going to feel sick from it. You're not going to get sick. It's just not going to be as fresh as they as the first day that it's poured. So it's very important to, to have a product that you have the balance of the price and the quality. And you're trying to be somewhere in the middle or more the quality rather than the, the price. We are definitely quality. I think we are not the cheapest beer in France. Uh, the area around Luxembourg in France is also not known to be the richest areas. But we are not backing down on our price because it comes with service, it comes with quality and it comes with everything surrounding it. So we don't bargain our beer. We don't give beers for 50 cent a litre. We don't do it. If people want that, they shouldn't come to us. I just want to change slightly the topic and uh, talk a little bit bit about uh, sustainability. Obviously, Brasserie Nacional is is, is known for the commitment uh, to sustainability. Could you share some of the initiatives the brewery has taken in response to the industry's increasing focus on eco-friendly brewing practices, and especially around the logistical part, because obviously for those who are uh, exporting, comes obviously with a stamp of non-sustainability aspects to it. So 99% of the products is quite close to Luxembourg, so we do a lot of deliveries ourselves, so it's, it's, it's not a problem. When it comes to packaging, I'll start, I'll start the other end. When it comes to packaging, we do about 82% of our packages are returnable. So that means bottles and that means kegs, 82%. The other ones is Vinoche Perdi, so one-way bottles and cans. Although cans, it's very recyclable, but so is glass. But So 82%, we take back to the brewery, we wash and we sell out again. When we start in the brewing process, we've always been... All the breweries in the world have been have been trying to be more and more sustainable for the simple reason that it's environmentally friendly, yes, but it's also economical. It costs a lot of money, but over time it will be useful. So, we'll, so where there's two things I want to say slash show off about. One of them is the Merlin. So Merlin is a cooking system in the in the cooking house. So you have four pots. One is to do the mash. So you have malt and water. You filter it and then you cook. What used to happen is you have a big pot. You can imagine a big pot in the kitchen. You heat it up from the bottom. It will slowly, the heat will slowly rise and will start boiling. What we have is a Merlin. We were the first ones to have this Merlin in the world. A Merlin is like a Chinese hat, if you will, like a cone where the beer comes up and it gets heated equally all around. What this does is we have 60% less cooking time and also 40% less energy, less gas, because it's much quicker to cook. We won the European uh, Environment Prize uh, in Prague in 2002. For this, there's only six Merlins in the world because it's a whole new philosophy of doing it. A lot of people were worried about it because it's such an open cooking space. People were worried that all the aromas would evaporate, which is not the case. That was the first big step we did. So then the other thing that we did, or the other big thing that we did was last year in 2022, was we did our own uh, water recycling system in the brewery. So we have two water systems. 
One of them is for production. So we get water out of our well. We have a well underneath the brewery at 317 meters. We take the water out and it goes through the process. That means we make beer with it or we make mineral water with it. Then the rest of the water, because there's a lot of cleaning involved in a brewery, because it needs to be sterile, because again, a lager is a very fragile product. If there's any bacteria in it, anything like that, it will change the flavor, it will change the color, it can get hazy, all of the things you don't want. So there's a lot of cleaning. So all this cleaning water gets recycled, it gets filtered, and then it gets reused for washing and for steam. The impact this had is that we use 50% less water. So now we're at 2.5 liters for one liter of beer. With that, we are in the world in the top, top three, top five. Cronenberg, for example, is at 3.4. The German average is at eight. The American average is at 12 liters for one liter of product. So with a 2.5, 2.4 to be exact, we are at the top leaders when it comes to, to using water. But, that, but in a 2.4, that includes the actual... That includes the product. The product. Yeah. And then also, the other thing is, is that all the other water that we have goes into the sewers. So it's, first of all, it's much less. So it's 90% less water that goes into the sewers than it did three years ago. And the water quality is qualified as drinking water. So the water that goes into our sewers is actually cleaner than a normal family household. Is it important for your consumers to know that your processes are, are sustainable? It sounds to me like a, like a very solid USP, right? So you can say uh, you're drinking beer that's been produced according to very high standard sustainability measures. Is that anything that, that they care about? Today it is. Uh, it wasn't always the case, uh, but today it's become very important. I think, especially when we talk about the water recycling um, bit, I think water gets more and more expensive. There's less of it. I mean, Evian's source ran out. So they ran out, they're out of water. They've shut down the, one of the big factories in France. So it's a serious problem. So the fact that we can do this, it's, it's very helpful. But would actually someone really stop drinking um, a beer or, or wine of a, of a, of a brand um, if you wouldn't have this sustainability stamp or put an investment in? Because obviously everything you do for sustainability comes also at a very high price Yeah. today, maybe not in the future, but it is an investment you have to do today that comes with a certain amount or a certain level of, of risk to, to the business. 100%. So for us, is, and we have to say the Luxembourgish government is very generous in this, is that they do help. So with Lux Innovation, and the Ministry of Economy during COVID, they did have a lot of help, anything that's sustainable. So if you present your project, so they did give us a little kickstart, pushed us in the right direction. We've always had the idea of doing it, but it, it's a big investment, but with help of a government. So you're like, okay, let's just do it. Are people going to drink less if we don't do it? No, I don't think so. Let's be honest. The average beer drinker just wants to have a good beer. The fact that, and this is my life mission, that one day it's going to be standard to go to a wedding and come out of church or the ceremony, whatever you want, and rather than have champagne, which is great, you can also have champagne, but also have a tray with beers. That never happens. I always have to go and find the catering guy. Where is the beer? And then I get the beer. And as soon as I bring it out, because it's usually June, July, it's hot, 
everybody wants a beer. And as soon as I bring it, everyone's like, oh yeah, where's the beer? Where'd you get it? A cold one, a good oh, cold one. Thank you. <laughs> the beer doesn't pop like champagne. Yeah. <laughs> but usually when you come out, it's already served and it's in, on the tray, but yeah. And it's less elegant than the glasses than the, that you but have on the tray. That's not true, that's yeah? not true. I think it's the way you present it. I can present you a beer, I can put a tuxedo on, white gloves, whatever you want, and nicely poured in a nice glass. It's just a cultural thing. People think that if you drink beer, you're not fancy enough. And that's a shame. There you have it. There you have it. Because I think now we've we found that the key kind of headline for your beer is like in the future will be like buffeting, the only beer that you serve at a wedding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The thing is because everyone serves beers and everyone and they all want to drink a beer, but it's just not not and and i'm not saying you should drink beer all night but i think at four o'clock in the afternoon you have two beers you feel much better and then you can drink your champagne and you want everybody wants a beer they're just too fancy to say yes please until somebody does it and they're like oh yeah i'm gonna get one too well i think at a wedding you need to have a mix of drinks let's agree on uh, a, a, a balanced balanced alcoholic um <laughs> event for everyone a bit of wine a bit of beer a bit of champagne i agree but yeah. how often have you come out of the venue and there is beer served there's always champagne always i had two beers before my wedding so same <laughs> I, don't, I, I'm not, I don't remember what it was but it was definitely beer <laughs> <laughs> on a bit more a serious note then you just mentioned you know during covid the help of the ministry of economy and uh, lux innovation how how important uh, do you see those two agencies or, or the minister in Luxembourg in helping Luxembourgish businesses to drive and also adapt to, you know, what after COVID happened is the new, the, the new world. I think we're very lucky in Luxembourg. I think that's a fact. I think the government has been very generous to us during COVID since still after COVID. We still get subsidies when it comes to electricity after the, after the, the, the Ukrainian war, the electricity soared, the malt soared, a lot of prices soared in the brewing industry and all other industries, especially electricity. The government does help and give subsidies. So you have to compliment them where compliments are due. And I think they are willing to help. They are generous. Yeah, we should try and make the most of it. I mean, that's what we do. <laughs> we just had national elections a month ago, or almost a month ago. Do you think that the, the incoming politicians understand the challenges that the industry is facing Luxembourg. It's, it's a tricky one, but uh, I'll still... I'll but still, overall, yeah. yes, I think yes. Better than before to make it simple and not get into trouble. <laughs> I, th I think, let's ask the question like this. With the new government coming into place, do you think businesses like yours in the same industry, also you know, your, comp your competitors, but also other industries that are working with you, you know, you have uh, the energy providers, you have your... Your, your suppliers inside Luxembourg, outside of Luxembourg, do you think everybody can be on the same level playing field when it comes to you know, helping creating more jobs and creating more successful businesses going forward? Or are we going to have the next five years, same old, same old? I, well, there has to be change. I think uh, Luxembourg needs to get attractive again. Since COVID, a lot has changed. The whole talk about Work-life balance is very important. Télétravail is very important. A lot of people who live in Metz, that's so, 50 kilometers from Luxembourg. In France. In yeah. France, yeah. yeah, 50 kilometers from Luxembourg. So we have around 200,000 French people coming to Luxembourg, 100,000 Belgians and 100,000 Germans. So this is why our population in the city doubles 
during a working week. So we we have to have these people to 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 function. But today, I know for a fact that people that live in 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 Mets, they commute at least two hours, two and a half hours every day to do 50 kilometers, where on a Sunday it takes about 45 minutes. For them, it's starting to get more attractive to take a train, go to Paris, work in Paris and go back home because it's easier. You can work on the train. So we have to make Luxembourg attractive and sure there's high salaries uh, which make it attractive, but everything else in Luxembourg is expensive. So the main goal for the government, I think, which they said they will do, let's see, is to make Luxembourg attractive again and attract companies, attract people and working people. On that, actually, if you think about what you just said, um, travel time to the city, as an example, takes a long time for relatively short distance. That must have a knock-on effect. If people get less, uh, come less to the offices or travel less into Luxembourg, that means where you are supplying your products in Luxembourg will be then less consumed during the week. Is that something you have noticed in the last two years? And the reason why I'm asking is obviously with your distribution business, selling to supermarkets and so on. So I'm assuming more people also that are not going to the pubs or the bars, they're then drinking at home. Have, is there some sort of a, has anyone ever done an analysis that say pub, pubs and bars down 20%, supermarket alcohol sales up 35%? I think COVID was the best example, uh, 2020, 2021. Bars were all shut, so zero sales in bars and an increased sales in supermarkets. But the increased sales in supermarket was only minor compared to the loss in bars. For the simple reason, you've all been to a pub. If you go to a pub with your friends, you have a peer, you have a pint, you're about to go home. There's always somebody that says, come on, let's have a last one before we hit the road. And then you have one and then you have another one. So you drink much more. It's much more sociable. If you're at home, you start drinking a beer. Maybe you open a second one. And if you're thinking about opening a third one, I'm talking about myself. I have somebody at home that tells me, I think you've had enough. I think you should go to bed. <laughs> I think that's the, 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 the reality. You drink less at home because it's less sociable. So yes, during COVID, there is an increase in, in sales in supermarkets, home delivery and all that, but it doesn't compensate the loss that you have in bars. So bars are important, I think, overall. And now talking about beer, there is also so much diversity in different drinks, in gins, in, in cocktails. It's all coming in, so people have more choice. In the interest of time, uh, as the clock is ticking, there's one question very close to to home for me and, and I, I like asking that for anyone that's involved in this kind of business. So you are, as, as you mentioned in the, in the beginning, you are an established family business in Luxembourg. Now, of course, it's a competitive world and, and it's always been challenges to, to, keep, to keep it as a, as a family business over time, as bigger ones are there to, to eat you up as soon as they can. So my question is very simple, Matthias. What are your secret ingredients in, in the family, essentially? How have you managed to, to keep it a family business over the, that many generations? As my dad always says, if you have an ambition and you have a goal, there's no reason to sell. I think the moment you have no more ideas and you plateau and you're not quite sure what to do, you might as well sell on a high rather than just keep dragging it on. We are a business where we have to diversify. So we started in beer since uh, 1764. In 2020, 
we launched a mineral water that became very successful because we diversified. Uh, this mineral water is the water that we use to produce our beer. We're very happy with the outcome of this and we have to look at other opportunities. Um, before that, we had only lager, as my grandfather used to say. It was very simple. You'd had buffeting in a can, in a bottle and in a keg. That was it. Today in the brewery, we fill 138 different units. So it can be kegs. You have 50 liter keg, 30 liter keg, 20 liter keg, 5 liter kegs. You have bottles, returnable one-way bottles, all different sizes, mineral waters, all different sizes. So it gets more and more complex. But this is what the market wants. You have to diversify. I mean, it also shows with our Batin brand that we had. We had lagers. Now we have eight different types of craft beers, if you will. So in terms of outlook then, where do you see the company heading towards to in the next 10 or 20 years? Is it is it in acquisitions of other businesses or even more brands? Or even integrating more family members? Uh, that was so, the other question I was going to ask is how do you see the next generations taking of the business? But that's probably also part of the outlook. I think the outlook ideally, I mean, ideally, the goal is to become the biggest distributor in the region. I think uh, we have potential we have a lot of potential especially in in france uh, and belgium uh, to become that uh, how does that happen the way we continue opportunities if there is somebody that wants to sell merge and acquisition always a good thing to to look at look at different breweries but i think the goal is really to become the biggest distributor in the region next generation we still have a bit of time uh, my sister's boys are eight and seven eight and six or nine and seven mine are four and two we have a bit of time <laughs> we always like to ask the question of if you were given the opportunity to to change anything in luxembourg i mean you, you mentioned earlier about competitiveness so that's more like business oriented but at the personal level if you had any chance to change anything what would you change the small town mentality i think that would make a big difference so i'm married to an english wife born and raised in london so big city girl I think this attitude of closing everything on a Sunday closing everything at six needs to change a bit because we are losing a lot of potential with simple things like that and I understand it's traditional it's a Christian country and you're supposed to go to church and spend time with your family and whatnot but those times have changed and I also understand a lot of other European countries do this but if we have, again, nearly 50% uh, foreigners living in Luxembourg. We need to adapt and we can't have this small village mentality. We need to outgrow it a bit. And I don't mean to offend anyone. In what so, small village do you live? <laughs> <laughs> but how would you approach that? A small country, conservative country, especially the local population is mm. risk averse or, or change averse in that sense. I think, what, what, how would you encourage people to, to do that? Because is the change going to come from outside with with the, the, the people coming in and influencing that? Honestly, I somebody needs to change the rules. It's it's going to be tough. They're not, there's not going to be liked by anyone. There's a lot of people going to complain. I have friends that have little shops that want to open on, on Sundays. It makes it tough with the laws. You can only work 40 hours. That means you have to hold new shift. You have to pay much more on a Sunday, at night hours, all these different things make it tough and i understand their industry where we are we were we are a mining country we they had to be protected and all that but today this all needs to change a little bit and somebody needs to have the guts and do it i think 
it's going to be very tough, but I wish them luck. They have my support. <laughs> if they don't do it, I, I think it will be also more challenging bringing in those talents that the country needs to develop and compete against you know, all these other other countries. I mean, we see that here in the UK. Well, we are in London here. So uh, you know, we have a 24-hour economy, not necessarily... Uh, many people in Luxembourg will probably agree uh, that it has to be a 24-hour economy, but a little bit of flexibility will probably help a little bit and being a little bit more open in terms of trying things. I think that that will be good. 100%. I think it's we don't have to go straight to the to the extreme and have a 24-7 service, but I think start off with opening things on Sundays. And not say, well, on Sundays you can do your shopping on a Saturday. So, okay, so every Saturday it's the same people, it's the same things. So we had a, a porte ouverte, so you like an open door to the brewery. And we were debating on doing it on a Saturday or on a Sunday. And the fact that you do it on a Sunday, you get 40% more people because there's nothing to do. So what are you going to do? Oh, we might as well go and visit a brewery and have a beer. And this is what that mentality needs to change because I also... I have a lot of expat friends, uh, my wife being an expat, and one of the main complaints is that everything is closed, there's nothing to do on the weekends. It's tough. If you look at Luxembourg as it is today and then compare it to five or ten years, a lot has changed for the positive. <laughs> and uh, probably one of those elements that it has changed is with a lot of expats coming, especially in the city, you know, English-speaking people and coming from other continents. So do you hear a lot of negativity around that or do you think it's a, it's, it's a positive? Uh, Probably so always positive in the summer when everything is open on a Sunday. I, I was about to say, but Luxembourg in the summertime is the best time to be in Luxembourg. Mm. So if you have friends, well, first of all, the weather, the weather is always a big, a big issue, which is normal, but that's everywhere. But there's so much going on in the summer, June, July. There's so much going on. There's so many concerts. There's so many events. There's every weekend you have something to do with your kids, with your family, with your parents, with whoever you want. There's always things to do. And this energy that comes in the summer during the school holidays needs to try and be all year round. That would make a big difference. Well, on that very optimistic and, and good note... Matthias, uh, I'd like to thank you. We would like to thank you for taking the time to talk to us and walk us through the uh, all the history and, and, of course, all the challenges and opportunities that Basque National will be facing and, and seizing in the future. So uh, definitely looking forward to having you back soon. And, and again, thanks a lot for your time. Well, thank you very much for having me. Let's go to the pub. Thank you for listening to Luxembourg's leading business podcast. If you're listening to our show on Apple Podcasts, please rate our programme using the five-star scale and leave us a review. Or if you're tuning into Spotify, it takes just a few seconds to give us a rating on the overview page of our show. You can also email us with your feedback or suggestions at info at luxunplugged.com. Mm-hmm.